We are continuing uh, this morning in our sermon series in the book of Genesis. You might remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the account of Isaac marrying Rebekah. Genesis chapter 24, Abraham sent his servant to find a wife from his extended family for his son Isaac. And if you remember, I mentioned that those were the last words that we would hear from Abraham, setting in motion the plan that through his family, by which God would fulfill his covenant of making a great nation, blessing the whole world. And so in the opening words of chapter 25 of Genesis, Abraham dies. Verse 8 says, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Sort of a unique phrase, that phrase gathered to his people, that we see elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's not particularly pertinent to our text today, but I want to mention it because it is pertinent to the season in which we find ourselves. Uh, Scripture says, Abraham died and was gathered to his people. We know that it can't mean that he was buried with his ancestors because that isn't true. He was buried alongside his wife, Sarah, not among his people. And so as we zoom out and we look at what Scripture teaches, it becomes clear that Abraham was gathered together with those who had died in faith. Those who had died believing, trusting in the promise of God. Remember, God started making promises all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when he promised that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the deceiving serpent. And from the moment that sin entered the picture, God was promising to save. And so dying in faith, Abraham is gathered together in the land of the living with all who die, trusting and believing in the promises of God. But here is why this is particularly meaningful this time of year. In two Sundays, we will gather together to worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And scripture teaches that because Christ has risen from the dead, all who die trusting in him, all who die in faith, will also rise. Abraham being gathered to his people is a reminder of the hope that we have. That resurrection day is approaching. When all that is broken will be undone. When disease and death and decay will cease forever. Abraham's body was in the ground in memory, but his soul was gathered with his people awaiting the resurrection. There's one other aspect of sort of the text between our text a couple weeks ago and today's text that I want to hit on, and that's from Genesis chapter 25, verse 5, where it says this, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Abraham had other children. We've heard that already. He had other sons. But Isaac was the son of the promise. He was the one through whom God would fulfill all of his promises And so Abraham gives his blessing and his inheritance to Isaac that God's redemptive plan might move forward. And that brings us to our text for today. Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 19. Genesis 25, starting in verse 19. This is God's word to us. 
This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was hairy like a garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. God, your word is true, and it is good. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and give us hearts to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sibling relationships can be interesting, can't they? I've been blessed with good relationships with my siblings, but I know that's often not the case. Many of you have, or maybe even today, are experiencing tension and competition and disunity and maybe even hatred among your sibling relationships. And you're not alone. The Bible contains a number of these types of stories. In today's text, we learn of the birth and then the young adulthood of Isaac and Rebekah's twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And so today, as we consider these words, I want to share with you three ideas that we see surface during this account. So we'll see these three ideas, and then the text sort of leaves us with a challenging question. So what do we see in our text? First, we see this, the centrality of suffering in the human experience. I don't know if you noticed this in our text as I read it. Verse 21 says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Why? Because she was childless. This might sound familiar, just like her mother-in-law, Sarah, Rebecca seems to be unable to have children. There is still some stigma in today's society regarding infertility. It's a difficult road that I know some of you have walked. 
Angela and I spent a few years on that journey as well. And what people who have never experienced infertility don't understand is that it's particularly cruel because it steals the joy out of life's joyful moments. Your friends are announcing pregnancies and you're simultaneously joyful for them and forced to grieve silently and alone. You see a baptism at church and you hate yourself because jealousy and resentment creeps in. It's a type of suffering that most people largely have to suffer in silence. And this was even more profound in Isaac and Rebecca's day when perhaps the primary social role of the woman was to produce children. Rebecca and Isaac are, as far as we can tell, faithful to the Lord, doing the right things. But the reality of sin and the reality of the brokenness of our world extends even to Isaac, the son of the promise. And Isaac prays to the Lord. And eventually God answers that prayer and Rebecca is pregnant, but the suffering doesn't end there. Even before the sons are born, there's dissension. Verse 22 says the babies jostled each other within her. The adversarial nature of these begins in the womb. And and this is just a, a precursor of what is to come. The competition, the division, the heel grasping between these two boys would be ongoing. And what we see is that even among the faithful, even for those at the center of God's will and God's plan, suffering is a reality. At our Wednesdays in the Word study on Wednesday evening, we studied John chapter 9, the account of Jesus' healing of a man who was born blind. If you remember, the disciples ask him, the narrative begins with the disciples asking, whose sin caused this man to be born blind? And of course, we know there are multiple causes, multiple reasons for suffering. Sometimes the suffering that we experience is the natural consequence of our choices. It's just what naturally happens when we make certain choices. Other times, Scripture tells us that it's God's correction in our lives. Sometimes it's just the reality that we're born in a broken world where nothing is as it should be. And then in the case of the blind man, it was... The reason for the suffering, Jesus tells us, was so that God's power, God's goodness, God's glory might be revealed. But here's what we discover, and we see it so clearly in our text for today, that where there is suffering, and there's always suffering, we also find the mercy and the presence and the promise and the salvation of God. Where there is suffering, we find the mercy and the presence and the promise and the salvation of God. And that is absolutely true in the story of Isaac and Rebekah, of Esau and Jacob. We see the, the centrality of suffering in the human experience, but also the mercy and the promise of God. What else do we see in our text? Second, we see God's sovereign choice and plan. When Rebekah notices the jostling and the struggling within her. She cries out to God. She prays to the Lord and God answers her. And in verse 23, we get this message, this oracle from the Lord 
about these two yet unborn sons. And this is what the Lord says to her. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. Now, now there are a couple of ways to understand this oracle, this message from God. It would be perfectly reasonable in a situation like this to attribute these words to God's foreknowledge, to his perfect knowledge of all that is and all that will be, that God is outside of time, that he's already present in that future moment, that he knows what will take place. And of course, all of that's true, but we might be tempted to simply say that God knows the future of what will happen between Esau and Jacob. And so God is simply declaring here the reality of what he sees. But scripture doesn't give us the luxury of viewing this text that way. From that simple perspective, I want to share two places that this story resurfaces later in the scriptures. The first one is in Malachi chapter 1. Not sure if you've read Malachi recently and paid attention to how the book begins, but listen to Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 2. It says this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Think back to those two nations that God mentioned. Rebecca, two nations are in your womb who will be separated. Verse 30 of our text tells us that the nation of Esau would become known as Edom. And in a handful of chapters, we'll see that God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And so we have these two nations, Edom and Israel, and God will choose between those two nations, and he will, of course, choose Israel. And then the Apostle Paul, we we jump forward into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul grabs onto this concept and gives us more explanation about God's sovereign right to choose. I'm going to read from Romans 9. Jacob and Esau resurface. Paul reflects on our text for today. Romans 9, starting in verse 10. Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. This is, of course, a challenging passage for many, many of us. I do plan to preach through Romans at a date in the future, uh, but I'm not doing that today. But, But it's important to recognize that Paul gives us some clarity here to help us understand what's happening in Genesis chapter 25. What clarity do we receive from Malachi and from Romans? Two quick points of clarity. The first is that God is sovereign. 
You might ask what that means, and that'd be a, a good question. It's not a word we use a lot today. It means that God is the supreme ruler, that he is the ultimate power, the sole decision maker. He is the creator. We are the creation. He is the designer, the author, the source, and the rightful controller of all that exists. If we were to keep reading in Romans 9, we would encounter Paul's illustration where he uses this idea that that God is the potter and we are the clay. And what right do we have as the created being to question or to talk back to God? And so God is sovereign. God can do what he wants with his creation. That's an important, it's not the whole story, right? That's an important realization as we think about our text for today. The second idea is this, and that's that God's choice is by his mercy and grace and not based upon merit. Romans 9, 15 and 16 says this, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. It does not, and this is so important, it does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. If you're approaching the scriptures with the assumption that God has to play according to your rules of fairness or equity, you're going to be disappointed over and over again. God created all that exists. He created Esau and Jacob, and he gets to choose through whom he will bless the world, which of them will be the means of that blessing. Of course, we get thrown off a little bit by the word hate, right? That's a, that's a tough word for us in these passages. When Malachi says it, and then Paul quotes Malachi, we see this same language with Rachel and Leah. We'll hear about that in, in several chapters in Genesis. Rachel and Leah. Jesus uses this language in Luke 14, when he says that his followers must hate their family in order to be his disciples. It's a biblical phrase that that means to choose one over the other. It's not maybe literal hate, like the phrase, I hate your guts. It's a phrase that means I, I choose, I'm showing preference for one at the expense of the other. God chooses Israel over Edom. God chooses Jacob over Esau, and he's orchestrating his grand plan to rescue humanity from their sin. God chooses one over the other. And Paul makes it clear that that choice is not made because Jacob is somehow better. It's not because Jacob is a better guy than Esau. It's based solely upon the goodness of God, the mercy and grace of God. We don't want to lose the forest for the trees here. What is God doing? What is God accomplishing? He is going to save mankind. He is undoing the curse of sin and death that looms over his creation. And he has selected, he has chosen this one particular family through whom it would take place, through whom his salvation would come. He has every right to choose Jacob over Esau, and his decision is good and gracious. So we see the centrality of suffering in the human experience. We see God's sovereign choice and plan. And then third, this text gives us some insight into our own human nature. Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau all tell us something about ourselves. It reveals something about our human nature. That The first of these three examples of our humanity is found in verses 27 and following. 
And that's this idea that we tend toward, or maybe trend toward, drift toward dissension. Scripture says this, The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. And then verse 28 says this, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We have some favoritism going on here, right? Esau is a manly man. He's strong and motivated and adventurous and outdoorsy and hairy, and he loves to hunt. He's an outdoorsman. This appeals to his father. This gets the testosterone flowing, right? Isaac loves Esau. But Jacob liked to hang out around the tents. He liked to stay home. His brother was out on an adventure, and and Jacob liked to be in the kitchen. And so Isaac was drawn to Esau, but verse 28 tells us that Rebekah preferred her younger son, Jacob. It, It doesn't mean they didn't love the other son. It just meant that they had a preference. They played favorites a little bit. Now, of course, Rebecca had an advantage in this, right? Because she had heard this message from the Lord. But nonetheless, we have this strange rift in the family. And not surprisingly, we find out the reason that Isaac preferred Esau. How do, how do most men make most of their decisions? Based on their stomachs, right? Esau brought home the wild game, and so Isaac was drawn to that. And there's some irony here when we think about what happens next in the story. The second example of our human nature in this text is exploitation. As humans, we are prone to take advantage of opportunities that lie in front of us. Oftentimes, even when it's at the expense of our neighbor, of even our family. Verse 29 says, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And Jacob replied, Okay, but first sell me your birthright. Jacob exploits Esau's desperate condition and essentially manipulates him out of his birthright. Let's talk about that idea of birthright for a moment. It's not something we hear a lot about in our world today. In the ancient world, there was a preference given to the firstborn son. The expectation was that the firstborn would be the one to carry on the family name and the family business. We don't think much about that in our culture today, but of course, if you follow the, for example, the British royal family, uh, you know the importance of birth order and birthright. And it's still not uncommon today among farm and ranch families, for example, for the, the firstborn to be offered the first opportunity to take over the operation. Uh, in ancient Israel, the firstborn would have been given a double portion of the estate. His inheritance would be twice as much as that of his brothers. Uh, we see this idea of the firstborn in the sacrificial system, too. The firstborn of the herd were to be dedicated to the Lord. The first fruits of the crop were to be taken to the temple as an offering to God. The firstborn son had a privileged status over the others. And it is this privileged status that the famished, exhausted, starving Esau sells for a bowl of stew. Now, it's unlikely that either of these young men knew what was playing out in this moment as it happened. But think about the imagery here. Abraham's second son became the first. 
Isaac's second son became the first. The Jews were the first, and they rejected the Messiah, and so the Gentiles who received the Messiah were made first. Many parallels that we see in our text today. Jacob exploits his brother's condition and convinces him to give up his birthright in order that he may be first. One more window into our human nature that I want to share, and that's what Esau tells us about ourselves. Uh, The story of these brothers again uh, surfaces in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, listen to how the pastor, speaking in Hebrews, describes Esau's actions. Hebrews 12 verse 16, it says, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. How does Hebrews describe Esau? Godless. That might not be our first description when we think about this story, but it it makes sense when we think about it. Why did Esau so willingly sell his birthright? Because he had no sense of what God was doing, no interest in the things of the Lord. He lived for the moment, for adventure, for his flesh. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot else about Esau. But ancient Jewish tradition actually has a lot to say about Esau. It's pretty interesting. Ancient Jewish tradition actually vilifies Esau. For example, one ancient Hebrew document says that on the very day that the birthright was sold, the very day that Esau sold his birthright to his brother, he just previously committed adultery with a woman who was engaged to another man. And that could explain why we see what we see in Hebrews chapter 12, why it's paired with sexual immorality. Again, that's not, in, that's not in the Bible. We don't see that in the scriptures. It might not be true. But what is true is what happened in our text, that Esau despised his birthright and all of the blessings that accompanied it for a bowl of stew. And Hebrews calls him godless for doing it. But of course, we probably see something of ourselves in Esau, willing to sacrifice the long term for what we think we need right now, governed more by our eyes and by our stomachs than by what is right and good, easily deceived and prone to tunnel vision, being quickly distracted by the concerns of today to the point that we almost forget about the Lord and about spiritual things. It's amazing how God does things like this takes a story from thousands of years ago concerning people that we have very little in common with and uses it to hold up a mirror in front of us in which we see ourselves, our own sin. The truth is we are Isaac and Rebecca. We are prone to dissension. We are Jacob, quick to exploit, to manipulate, to deceive, to take advantage of another when it will benefit us in the moment. We are Esau making decisions with our flesh, with our eyes, with our stomachs, godless at times. I mentioned at the beginning of of the sermon that our text leaves us with a challenging question. And that question is this, is your hope in the flesh or in the promise of God? It's my hope that you will wrestle with this question a little bit today. Is your hope in what you can see with your eyes in what makes sense, in what you feel today, in what you can accomplish 
in your own ability and strength and experience? Or is your hope in the promise of God? You see, the whole firstborn brotherly competition nonsense is pointing us forward to something better. God's intention with this story of Jacob and Esau isn't just that we walk away from the text with a a reminder to be nice to our siblings and not to trade what is important to satisfy a temporary need. Those are good lessons. We should be nice to our siblings. Uh, We shouldn't uh, be willing to sacrifice long-term good for short-term gain. But the concept of the firstborn, this idea that's so profoundly introduced in our text today, is not just, it's not just filler in the story. It's not just there to create a little bit of drama and tension. It's part of a series of breadcrumbs that are scattered throughout the scriptures. We're intended to follow to see where they lead. And when we follow these firstborn breadcrumbs, eventually we arrive in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul ties this together for us. Listen to Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read these words for you. I'm going to start in verse 13 if you're wanting to follow along in your Bible. Colossians 1, starting in verse 13. Listen to these words. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now listen to this. The Son, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And then we hear this word again. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And and then these closing words from Paul, once you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. God weaves together this wild relationship between brothers and scatters throughout the story these breadcrumbs. This idea of the firstborn, this imagery to lead us to the true firstborn. The firstborn over all creation. The firstborn, as Paul says, from among the dead. What does that mean? That's a reference to the promise of resurrection. That Jesus took you who, by nature, because of your sin, were alienated from God, cut off from God, and he brought you near. Jesus is the true and better firstborn. And so we turn to the cross. We confess that we are like Isaac, Rebekah, like Jacob and Esau. We believe the good news that while we were 
still in our sin, while we were alienated from God, that Jesus died for us. The true and better firstborn went to the cross for you, died for your sin to reconcile you to God. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your word. May these words, this interesting family story from Genesis, may they help us to see our sin and to repent. May these words help us to see Jesus and to believe. May these words help us to see your plan to return and to restore all things and we might live with great hope in your promise. God, we thank you that our hope isn't wrapped up in a second-born stealing the birthright, but in the true firstborn over all creation. And so we are grateful for your love shown us on the cross, your son Jesus Christ. We worship you, our risen, sovereign, and good King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.